invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We'll start in verse 35 this morning. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love your word. We're so thankful for it. And Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed to us yourself through this word. And you have revealed to us who your Son is through this Word, through your Holy Spirit. And you have revealed to us who our Lord is through this Word and through your Spirit. And so we're gathered here today to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful for Him and knowing Him. We're so thankful for the difference that He makes in our lives and the joy that He brings. Father, I just pray that You would be in this time that we have here this morning, that You would be in the preaching of Your Word, that we would be stirred up by it, Father, that it would encourage us, that it would speak to whatever area in our life that we need it. Father, that you would use your word to edify and build up your people. That you would use it to sanctify your people here. And Father, that we could have something that this very week, that we could be able to use it in our life. Most of all, Father, I just pray that your word would glorify you that it would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and that it would lead our hearts to worship. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The nature of the Messiah. David's son is David's Lord. Our parallel passages for this account in the Gospel of Mark is in Matthew 22 verses 41 through 46 and also in the gospel of Luke in chapter 20 verses 41 through 44 and I would like us now to turn to Matthew's gospel Matthew chapter 22 and for us to read verses 41 through 46 because we're going to reference this a good bit here this morning. He adds a few things or he has some different words that were spoken that Mark decides to leave out, but these are important. 
Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare to question him. I like that. I like that. We might call it in our day and time a mic drop. (laughs) A mic drop. It refers to when you're having a conversation with someone or you're having a debate and you say something so profound that the other person is not, be, is not able to answer and everyone's awed by it. So if you're holding a microphone, you just drop it and you walk off. Which isn't really the point. It's not really something that we should do. I think Matt Jones talked about that, how we don't really in our debating want to do mic drops because we want to keep the conversation open. And continuing. And this wasn't Jesus' purpose in this at all. He wasn't looking for a mic drop moment, or he wasn't looking to even uh, make the Pharisees look bad by not being able to answer a question. He just simply wanted to point out the flaw in their understanding of who the Messiah was. And he wanted them to think about it. And, and have deep reflection within. And so, you know, as we come to this text of Scripture and, and we look at it today, we're, we're really kind of coming to the end of this section that started really all the way back in chapter 11 in Mark's Gospel. How when Jesus came into the temple for this final week of his life, everything has been building up to this moment, right? And we've had all along the... The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all those that made up the Sanhedrin, they have been fighting Jesus the whole time during his public ministry, questioning him, arguing with him, uh, fighting against him, persecuting him and his followers. And it is all built up to this last and final moment, this last week that Jesus spends here before he is put to death. And he has come into the temple, their beloved place, their most sacred and holy place, the place that they thought was theirs, right? And he comes into it. And how did he come into it? He came into it first riding on a donkey. He came in in humility, but it was also a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament that said, your king is coming to you on a donkey, right? On a colt. They couldn't see it. Their eyes were blinded by it. They even laughed at him, saying, hey, this is, this is, the, this is he who th- says that he's the son of God. He's, he's coming in on a donkey. But then he comes into the temple, 
And when he's, when he's seized and he's filled with the Spirit and he's filled with zeal for the house of the Lord, when he saw how they, they had made the temple a place to make money for themselves and to profit from other people, it says that he, he drove them out. He overturned the tables and he drove them out. And he gives us a, a, a stern rebuke to them and says, How dare you make this house, which is supposed to be a house of worship, a house of prayer and of praise to God, how dare you make it into a den of thieves? Well, they didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. And the pride of man never likes to be pointed out in his pride, in his arrogancy, and, and, and confronted with the truth. And so it is stung. And I'm sure, you know, right after this happened and Jesus went home for the day, I'm sure they all had their meeting and gathered up together and said, what are we going to do about this Jesus? What, how are we going to be able to get rid of them? And remember, they've been having these conversations for a while. Remember, even the Herodians had joined in with the Pharisees saying, how can we get rid of this Jesus? How can we put him to death? And they conspired together and they were always looking for occasions to be able to to capture him or to have something to accuse him of that they could put him on trial and put him to death, but it wasn't his time. Remember, the scripture keeps saying that the crowd pressed upon him, the, the Pharisees pressed upon him, the, the, the rulers pressed upon him, but it says it was not yet his time. He was able to pass through the midst of them. He was able to escape with no problem because his time hadn't yet come. Well, his time has come now. The fullness of time has come. And so he's in the temple and he's spending his last week on earth doing good and teaching and preaching and serving and giving his minutes and his days and his hours to the people of God because that's what Jesus does. And as he is in here doing good and teaching and healing, then these that met together, they said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to send different people. We're going to send scribe. We're going to send a Pharisee, a lawyer. We're going to send uh, a Herodian. And we're going to ask them these questions. And we're going to, these questions are going to be in such a way that we hope that Jesus will say something wrong. We're going to trap him by these questions and these words and hope that we have something to be able to accuse him of and that maybe he'll either anger the people or he'll say something blasphemous and then we can, we can put him on trial. So it really started in Mark 11, verse 27, when it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Okay, so this is this group that compromises the Sanhedrin. The, those that were in charge in Israel, those that were the leaders. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? So the first question is, they question his authority to drive out the money changers, to speak against their practices and their customs, to tell them what the scriptures said, And so we saw here that, that Jesus began to show great wisdom in the way that he responded to them. 
First of all, they were, gonna, they were not going to be able to trap him. They were not going to be able to have anything that he was going to say that wasn't true because he is truth and he can only speak the truth. But they didn't know that. But we see the wisdom that he, he, uh, he uses here and we looked at it in what it says in Proverbs. It says, don't answer a fool according to his folly lest, you, lest he be wise in his own conceits or lest you become like him. And then it says, but answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. And so Jesus does that here. And so he doesn't answer their question about authority. He just asks them a question which they cannot answer, right? He says, well, I'll tell you what authority I do these things. If you tell me John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? And they couldn't answer this. They knew that they they couldn't answer him that question because if they said... Well, it was from heaven. He would say, why didn't you believe? Or if it was from men, the people would get angry because they held John in high esteem. He was a prophet of God. He was a a, a man of God. He had many followers and they believed in his message. So they couldn't say that. So Jesus, he, uh, he shows great wisdom here in this. He gets him to think about, well, is Jesus' authority from the same place that John's authority was from, well, we, we, we probably can't use this line of questioning anymore. And so Jesus shows us something in this, though, that I wanted to bring out again today that we've been talking about with the youth of our church in having conversations with people about your faith and about the Bible and um, those things is ask questions. When somebody comes at you and attacks you for what you believe in, Turn it around to them and ask them questions. Ask them questions about why they believe in what they believe. Or why do you believe this about what you're saying I believe in? Have have you studied and read the whole Bible? Do you know everything that's taught in it? Right? Are you an expert on these things? Are you an expert on all religions? And so you ask these questions, not to make them look bad or to win the argument... You ask these questions so that they can think about what they believe for themselves. And why are they coming at you? Why are they attacking you? And so you, you, you deflect it off of yourself and you don't make it personal and attack them. You just simply ask probing questions to gather information so that you can better understand them and so you can know how to respond. Well, Jesus does that perfectly. He always does that. He asks a question not to... Not to avoid answering their question, but he asked a question to get them to think about why are you asking that question? What is in your heart that you would ask that question? Why ask what authority you do these things? Because you don't like what I'm doing. Because what you're doing is wrong. Because what you're doing is not according to what's written in God's word, but your own traditions, right? And so that was the point. And so they started with the authority question. Jesus silenced them there. And then he goes on to tell in Mark's gospel this parable of the wicked vine dressers, which had to do with how judgment was coming upon the nation of Israel and its leaders because they had rejected God's word. And they're rejecting his Messiah that he sent. And it says they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude. 
for they knew he had spoken this parable against them, so they left him and went away. So they leave and they go away, but then they come back again, and they send these people to ask them these questions. And we've looked at these. So they ask all their questions, and we've looked at Jesus' responses. Man, he shows great wisdom in all of these. And they're silenced, each and every one. And not only are they silent, but I think that it gets people to think, and it gets them to think. And, and I think this whole time, while this large group is gathered around Jesus in the temple, they're hearing him speak these words, and they're seeing that the religious leaders, they're coming to Jesus with these questions, and they're, they can see that they're trying to trap him. They, they, they know how they work, and they're seeing that Jesus isn't giving in, and that Jesus is, 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 uh, is speaking these words of truth and, and also love. And Jesus is always, remember, until his last day, he is always teaching his disciples, his followers. Know that they're doing this to me. They're going to do it to you. And how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? Use God's word and ask questions about God's word and your understanding of God's word and how you're interpreting God's word. And that's what Jesus does in our text today when they bring this question to him. Or he really starts it, as we see in, Ma- in Matthew's gospel. He starts the question, and he asks questions, but he attacks their misinterpretation of Scripture and their misunderstanding of Scripture. But they've come to him with their questions, and now it's time, brothers and sisters, for Jesus to ask them a question. And part of understanding why Jesus asked this question and why he deals with this particular subject and goes to quotes from Psalm 110 specifically, you've got to understand some of the history that is leading up to this, right? So you've got to understand where, where Israel is at this time, their conception of who the Messiah is, their conception of, of what they thought that the Messiah was supposed to be, And so we've talked about that before, but they and the religious leaders were teaching, as we see by their response, that the Messiah was going to come from the seed of David. We we know that this was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was clearly stated. We know that you can look at the beginning of the Gospels and you can see that Jesus indeed came from both Mary and Joseph's line. He descended from David. And so we know that, that that was true and that was right but what they had began to teach the people was that the messiah was only and merely going to be descended from the son of from the lineage of david they had left out the part about what david said about him and that he was lord that he was the son of god this was the thing that they struggled with the most about jesus was his claim to be the son of god his claim to be equal with the Father. This is what they had an issue with. Even, even though they didn't believe he was the Messiah, they said, well, if he is the Messiah, he's just, he's just the son of David. The Messiah is just the son of David. He is not God manifest in the flesh. 
D.A. Carson says, Having seen of the opposition, uh, I'm sorry, having seen off the opposition and one glowing approval, Jesus now goes on the offensive with his own open-ended question. Jesus knows that they've been teaching that the Messiah is just the son of David. He knows that. He doesn't need to know that. He doesn't need to know the response. It's an open-ended question. He's saying, when he asked them, who is the Messiah, he knew what they were teaching. He knew already what they, what they thought. But he's, he's getting them, he's setting them up to say, well, you're going to say the son of David, but then we're going to go to David, and we're going to see what David says about the Messiah. So whose son is the Messiah? Whose son is the Christ? I love what the question that Jesus asks. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? And so we see in what Jesus is doing is he's challenging, and this is from Carson also, Jesus challenges the adequacy of the scribes' conception of the Messiah. Their conception and their teaching of the Messiah was not adequate. Yes, they were teaching that he was the son of David. He descended from the lineage of David. That is true. And we'll look at that. But it was inadequate because they were not teaching that he was also David's Lord. One and the same. He is the son of David, but he is also David's Lord. So as we just look at this quickly this morning, we're going to look at the first question that Jesus asked. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Then just their answer, which is he's the son of David. And then the second question, which is, well, let's look at David then. And if David said he is Lord, then whose son is he? Or how can he be his son? So the first question, number one, the first question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I love what Matthew Henry says when just kind of giving an overview of this section of Scripture. He says, when we attend to what the Scriptures declare as to the person and offices of Christ, we shall be led to confess him as our Lord and God, to obey him as our exalted Redeemer. When we attend to what the Scriptures declare as to the person and offices of Christ, we shall be led to confess him as our Lord and God, to obey him as our exalted Redeemer. Why? Do the teachers of the religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, because that's what the scripture said. Said that the Messiah, the deliverer, the king, who would, be, who would have an eternal kingdom, he would come from the lineage of David. David was promised by the Lord that one would come from your seed that would be the king, Right? And he would set up an everlasting kingdom. 
But what Jesus is asking is, why are the religious leaders and teachers of the law teaching that he is just the son of David? Our Lord was now in the temple. The temple. The place that David longed to build. The the house for the Lord, right? He wanted to build... God, a, a, a permanent dwelling place. He wanted to, to, to build a place that was n- none, like no other. He said, that if we have houses made of stone, if we have houses made of, made of brick and of mortar, and if we have houses made of maybe even gold, then how much more should the Lord have a house that is much greater than all of ours? Well, he wasn't able to build it himself because of the blood that he had shed. But he said, I'll allow your son, Solomon, to build it for me. And David accepted that in humility, and he did everything he could in his might and in his power to prepare for the building of this temple. And Solomon's, Solomon's temple was grand and glorious. But this was not the temple that they were standing in, because that temple was destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But the temple was rebuilt. People of God came back after their 70-year captivity and they began the work on building the temple. And they did a lot of the work over time and then it was finished in the days of Herod and it became known as, as his temple. But it's the temple of the Lord and this is where Jesus is and he's teaching them here. And... The Lord of the temple, the Lord of David, the one that that he wanted to build the house for, is standing in front of them. He is the Messiah, and he's asking them this question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Getting them to think about this. Is he just the son of David? Is he just a man? Or is he God? He was challenging their authority. Remember, they had challenged his authority. Well, now he's challenging their authority. And he says, how did the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? These were the ones who were the ones who were copying the scriptures down. These were the ones who who had access to David and to the Psalms. They had access to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, to Daniel, who all prophesied of this Messiah and who he would be. And yet, they missed out on this or they rejected the idea altogether. They only only cling to the fact that he was going to be of the lineage of David, but they forsook teaching the truth about how he would also be the son of God, the son of man that Daniel prophesied of in his revelation, the son of man who would come and he would set up his kingdom on earth and it would overcome all the other kingdoms of this world. And so he's challenging their authority and he's challenging their inadequate 
interpretation of the Scriptures. And we see that they have this because, number two, not is their answer, which is, they said to him, Matthew twenty-two forty-two. 42, they said to him, the son of David. He's, the Messiah is the son of David, that's it. And this was true, right? And we could go to many Old Testament scriptures and many New Testament passages, which I want to look at a few, that this was the promise of the Messiah, that he would come from the seed of David. And others understood this to be true, and they believed this. Matthew nine twenty seven says, and, and Jesus went on from there, and two blind men following him cried out, Have mercy on us, son of David. They saw who Jesus was. He was the son of David. He was the promised Messiah that came from David's seed, and therefore he's called the son of David, as one descending from him. John seven forty two. Hath not the scripture said that Christ, Christ comes of the seed of David out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was, right? Not only was the, the Christ, the Messiah, going to come from the seed of David, he was actually going to be born in David's town, the town of Bethlehem, right? And we saw the providence of God that even though Joseph was from Nazareth, because of, the, um, because of the census that the Romans wanted to do, everyone had to go back to their family lineages hometown, and Joseph's family, family lineages was from Bethlehem. And so he had to go back to Bethlehem for the censor, and while they're in Bethlehem because of that, then Jesus Christ is born. And he's born in a manger in Bethlehem. David, the great shepherd, right? The great shepherd of Israel. The Messiah was born from his seed in his hometown in probably a sheep stable. The sheep, the great shepherd of the sheep was born in a sheep stall and laid probably in a, in a crib where they would keep the young, young ones. And then Paul says in Romans 1 concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Right? So he descended. He was of the lineage of David. And he says this, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul understood that he was not just the son of David, but he he was the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the last book of the Bible, Jesus, speaking to John through the Holy Spirit, in the last words that we have, says, I, Jesus, Revelation 22, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So, yes, Jesus was, or the Messiah was, the son of David. But they left it at that, and Jesus says, you can't leave it at that, and be faithful to Scripture. 
Because what does David say? Or what did David say through the inspiration of the Spirit, right? So then, let's go and look at Jesus' second question. And let's have our finger at Psalm 110. Jesus is not just merely the son of David, but he is also David's Lord. Jesus said, for David himself, the one you're saying, he's the son of David. Let's go and let's ask David and see what David said about the Messiah. For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah just be his son? Right? That's the second question. First question was, what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? They said the son of David. He says, all right. If David then called his son Lord, then how can you just say that he's just the son of David? You understand? Matthew twenty two forty three says, he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Or how is he just the son of David? Or how can someone be your son and also your Lord? So Psalm 110 is what he's quoting from. The announcement of the Messiah's reign. The prophecy about the coming Messiah. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the self-existent one, the eternal one. Yahweh said to my Adonai, the sovereign one, the creator of the universe. This is a conversation that we have recorded between the Godhead. (laughs) This is not God talking to himself. This is God the Father talking to God the Son. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This speaks of a time in the future when the, the seed of David, the Messiah, would come and he would fulfill all that the Father had given him. He would accomplish all that the Father had sent him to do. He would keep the law perfectly. He would die a substitutionary death on the cross, thus appeasing the wrath of God against the sins of all of His people. And He said in His last words, It is finished. Into your hands do I commend my spirit. And because He accomplished all that the Father had sent Him to do, because He lived a perfect life, And because he appeased the wrath of his father, he was raised from the dead on the third day and he ascended up into glory. And Yahweh says to his son, sit down at the place of power. 
Because you've been given a name which is above every name. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Because you did it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies. And I put them under your feet. There's not going to be one enemy left that hasn't been put under submission to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you missed out on this text. Yes, the Messiah is the son of David. But David said about the Messiah that he's my Lord. He's my Adonai. He is the sovereign king over me. You see, they held, they held David in high regard and with great right. He was the true king of Israel. He was really the only, if you look at Israel's history, he was the only really true and godly king, a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect. He sinned. But there was no other reign like the reign of David. And when they think about the Messiah, they were thinking about a restoration of the kingship of David. A man who would, who would reign like David reigned. Maybe even greater than David reigned. And he would set up an, what they interpreted an earthly kingdom that would go forever. The Jews would be in power and everybody would be subject to them. But they misinterpreted the scriptures. And they didn't look at this carefully. Jesus points this out to them and says... Well, what do you think about what David said? What do you think about that? If David said about the Messiah that he is Lord, he says, then how is he his son? How can he be his Lord and his son? Well, it can be because he is from his lineage. He would come from that. He did come from his lineage. He is the son of David. He is the promised Messiah. But the mystery was that God himself, God the Son, would condescend and be born into the world. And this man was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, second person in the Trinity, we would say. He became flesh. And so then you could have the Messiah that came from the seed of David is the Lord. Right? And John would say the Word which was from the beginning. Right? Who always was and was with God in the beginning. Who created all things. It says that that Word was made flesh. And we beheld His Glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So these two meet together, the Messiah and the Lord. And they're in one person, standing right there in front of them. The Messiah that you've been waiting on, the Messiah that you want to talk about, the son of David, he's Lord. He was David's Lord, and he's your Lord.
Our Lord shows that the Messiah, such as he was, was not a mere man, as the Pharisees thought, but that he was God and therefore David's Lord. The meaning, therefore, is this. The Lord God said to my Lord, that is Christ, sit thou at my right hand. That is, when after his cross, his death, and his resurrection, he will exalt him far above, far above all principality and power and place him next to him in heaven that he may reign with supreme happiness and power and glory over all his creatures. These words show that this is a divine decree fixed and irrevocable. This was the promise. This was the conversation. It was as if it had already happened. And there was nothing that the scribes or the Pharisees or Herod or Pontius Pilate or Caesar could do to change it. They were all only parts of God's plan. Still wicked, still sinful, still accountable. But God is the sovereign one orchestrating it all. But what the, another thing they didn't understand was that this was a spiritual kingdom. And that this kingdom, this king, was building a spiritual kingdom called the church. Right? Well, they thought it was going to be a natural kingdom. And so that was part of their misunderstanding. Because they believed that, then they had to make him just a man. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And I like what Mark says. He says, and the common people heard him gladly, with great joy. This is the fulfillment. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I am the Messiah. I am the Lord. I am here. I am the Creator, and I am your Redeemer. And he had already said to them that he was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, which said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He has anointed me. He is the Anointed One to preach the Gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, right? To set those free that were in bondage to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And those that were poor, not only in this world's good, but poor in the Spirit, they rejoiced gladly when they saw Jesus and when they heard Jesus. Well, this passage, we don't have time to do this, but this passage, Psalm 110 it is quoted more than any Old Testament passage in the Scriptures. Over 33 times it is quoted or referenced in the New Testament. So the apostles and the disciples, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw how important this was in interpreting it correctly. Just to look at a few Paul and his great resurrection passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, quotes it, says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Then again in Hebrews, 
Hebrews 1.13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Why is Jesus better than the angels? Because he's the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Sit at my right hand. He's never said that to an angel. The angels have to keep their distance. The angels who are without sin, right? Who were created for the worship of God. They have to keep their distance from Yahweh. But Jesus gets to sit at His right hand. Because He's the Lord. He's Adonai. And then He says later in Hebrews chapter 10, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, the place of power, the the special place, the place of favor. He sat down at His right hand, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. And then probably the best is Acts chapter 2. The sermon on the day of Pentecost. Because... Peter remembered this, this conversation that Jesus had in his last, last week on earth. And when he's filled with the Spirit of God and he's preaching, he doesn't hold back anything. Acts chapter 2, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I mean, he just said it, right? He just said it. Jesus is both the Messiah, and the Lord. And you crucified Him with your wicked hands. What happened when He said that? There were those that were pricked in the heart. Right? Because He spoke the truth. And the Spirit testifies of the truth about Jesus Christ. Yes, He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, but He is also the Lord. He is sovereign over your life. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the right question. When you know who Jesus is, He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He wasn't just a religious rabbi. He wasn't just a teacher come from God. He, was God. he is God manifest in the flesh. He is, as Paul said in Colossians, He is before all things. He has created all things. And by Him, everything is held together in the universe. He is the sovereign King of the universe. And He is your Savior who died for you, who gave His life for you, and who loves you with an everlasting love. 
What's the proper response to that? What shall I do? Love Him who has loved you by submitting to Him. Right? Turn from your sin, believe, and be baptized. That's the proper response. But only those who are pricked and cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit can respond that way. So the response after Jesus asked this question is, in Matthew twenty-two forty-six, 46, it says, And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare to question him anymore. So they stopped trying to trap Jesus from that point on. No more questions. No more trying to get Jesus to say something he can't say. What we've got to do now is we've got to get someone who will betray him. We've got to come up with false testimonies and false witnesses that we can take to the leaders. And, he, and we've got to get the Romans to kill him. All right, so that's their plot from here on out. But the common people heard him gladly. What about you today? The common people. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He did not come for those that think they're whole, but for those who see themselves and know that they are sick. The whole need not a physician, but those that are sick. Not physically, but spiritually. Those who see the depravity in their own heart. Those that see the wickedness in their own soul. Those that realize they have nothing in their hands that they can bring before a holy and righteous God that will appease His wrath against their sin. And so their only plea is to cry out for mercy. Their only plea is the righteousness of Christ. Their only plea is the blood of Jesus Christ. That it would cover my sins. That it would heal all my wickedness. That it would change my heart. That it would change my desires. That instead of loving myself, I would love Him. That's what you need. The common people hear the message about who Jesus is. And they hear it with great joy. Because He became like them. He came to His own, and His own rejected Him. But it says, to all those who come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. And He calls to those, and He says, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, come to Me, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, and learn of Me, for I am meek and lowly. Isaiah 55. Come, those that are thirsty. Those that are hungry. Those who realize they cannot be filled with the things of the world. Come to the one who can fill your soul. I read something this week by J.C. Philpott. And it was in reference to the time when Jesus said, What will it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world, but yet loses his own soul? He said, take your soul and put it on one side of the scale. You have nothing but just your soul. An eternal soul that God has created. All your unworthiness, unrighteousness, your brokenness, and all of that. And he said on the other side, it's all that this world has to offer. All that this world's goods, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All the things that you could amass in your time here on earth. All the things that you think will satisfy you. Which one is going to tip the scale? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? But what if you realize the soul is the most valuable and precious thing on the earth? And what if this soul has been touched by the glory of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and He has washed away all your unworthiness, and He has washed away all your guilt, and He has blessed you with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. He has purchased your soul with His own blood. You are bought with a price. Well, now that, you realize, is greater than all of the things on this side of the scale. So, how's the scale look in your life? I think the song, one of the songs says this. Take all my freedom, take all my liberty, take all my will and give it all to Christ. And He becomes your all in all. Give away your will, your freedom, your liberty and surrender it to the true Messiah who is the Son of David but who also is David's Lord. Another song says something to the effect of you take all that the world has, fame, fortune, money, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, power, but give me Jesus. (laughs) You take all that, but give me Jesus. I tell you, if you have heard him gladly, if you have heard him with joy, that'll be the cry of your heart. Give me Jesus, nothing else. May God bless his word.